Welcome back to Hidden Grief, a podcast about the myriad ways grief operates in our daily lives. My name is Saran Sidime, your host. This week, we are taking a deep breath, literally and figuratively, because speaking with Jen Richardson, this week's guest, indeed feels like taking a big, deep breath. One beckoning us to slow down, to steady ourselves and pay attention to where it hurts and to give the ache in our hearts the lamentation it deserves. Jen Richardson is an artist, writer, and ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. In this episode, we discuss her most recent book, Sparrow, a book of life and death and life, in which she reflects on the death of her late husband, Gary. Jen reminds us through her writing in this conversation of the power of bearing witness to grief and that our hearts can hold much more than we think it capable of. All right, Jen, so excited to have you on today. Ah, I'm such a fan of your writing and I've told you this before. This was a huge, just it's a huge honor to to sit down and be in conversation with you. I know a lot of folks in my life are very jealous right now. I am so glad to be in conversation with you and so grateful for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's begin for those listeners who don't know who you are. Tell us about you. My name is Jan Richardson, and who am I is a really complicated question right now. I am a native Floridian. My family has been in Florida for several generations, and I grew up in a small community just south of Gainesville, a remarkable place called Evanston, where much of my family still uh, remains in the area. And I am an artist and a writer, and I am also ordained in the United Methodist Church. Today, we're discussing your recent books, and I just want to hear what the inspiration behind that book is when I think about Sparrow, I think that Sparrow came out of both inspiration and desperation. Mm. And sometimes those are, uh, I find that those are very much of a piece. The Sparrow is a story, is a book that has its roots in, in my story with Gary, my my amazing husband and sweetheart who died in 2013 after we had been married just for a few years. And he was diagnosed one summer with a brain aneurysm. And several months later in the autumn, I had surgery to address the aneurysm. And we were very hopeful that the surgery was going to go smoothly and um, very well. And it did not. And there were complications during surgery. Gary had a massive stroke, was placed into a medical coma uh, where he remained for, he never woke. He remained in the coma for nearly three weeks before he, before he died. And while Gary was in the hospital, I began writing notes to him. I opened up a file on my computer and began writing notes as I kept vigil with him. And these were things, when I say notes, these were things I was writing about what was happening from moment to moment and day to day as we were navigating that 
journey. These were things that I wanted to be able to remember to tell him after he woke up Mm -hmm. from his coma, things I wanted him to know about the people who had cared for him and the people who had cared for us during that time and the procedures that had happened. And clearly things went in a different direction and I didn't get to tell him those things. But about six months after his death, I opened that file on my laptop again one one summer evening, and I began to write to Gary again. And as I had done with, with the notes when he was in the hospital, I wrote to him, you know, in that second person to, to Gary and picked up the story again. And that became a place where I could talk about what was unfolding in my story. And it became a place where I could tell of the, gosh, <laughs> the, what the fresh raw grief was looking like at that point, and a place where I could tell what was unfolding as the fresh raw grief began to become something else as mm-hmm. I lived with it, as I journeyed with it. it w- those pages were a place where I could tell Gary about the the heartache, but also the hope and the deep aching sense of absence, but also the remarkable moments of grace and loveliness that were unfolding amidst my keen sorrow. And so when I talk about all that being part of the inspiration for Sparrow, and I use the word desperation in that as well, because I really, I was... I was desperate for a place where I could say those things, where I could write those things, where I could tell and bear witness to what was unfolding in my own story. And because of that, there was something about that process of writing to Gary and entering into something that began to feel something like a conversation. And I use that Mm. word very loosely because it wasn't like I heard Gary's voice in that, but there did come to be some sense that some kind of exchange was happening. And I don't have a lot of words for that. That's kind of something that um, feels very mysterious to me, but that some of Sparrow became something of a nest when everything in my life had come apart and word by word and line by line and story by story. Yeah. And I think as you know, someone who writes Sparrow, it it does feel almost as if we're watching a conversation happen or really the image that I had was you sitting down writing and us sort of being invited to witness that process. Because a lot of times you're very direct in your language, right? You just, you know, sweetheart. And it's like, nope, the rest of us are not involved here. We are, you know what I mean? Like this is, you can read what I wrote to my sweetheart this evening. Like we're sort of invited into what sometimes really feels like this intimate relaying of of the day, of a happenstance, because you are in it. And we're invited to witness you going through it. So thank you for that. Thank you. And it feels important to say that I didn't realize when I set out into it, that it was going to become a book and particularly that it was going to become a book that I would share with other people. And it feels that way, like, oh, like, no, she was not thinking about anybody reading this when she was writing this. It's very clear, like, you know, but we felt invited nonetheless, which I think Mm -hmm. is really the the gift of your writing is that you just have a way of putting language to grief that truly is, I think, just remarkable. We asked this question of all our guests, what is one pain in your life that you carry that won't go away? Mm, That is a, mm, yeah. That is a big question. But it's such a, and but even as I, I say, it's a, it's a big question. It's such a, gosh, it's such a 
deeply personal, like for each of us, I'm not saying just for me, but for each of us, because we, we all have some kind of answer for that. The response, of course, that comes to mind is uh, the pain I carry is my grief over Gary's death. But in thinking about that question, I, I find myself wanting to be really clear about, you know, in saying that my sorrow over Gary's death is a pain that I always carry with me. I don't want to be discouraging about grief, particularly for those who, who might be mm-hmm. in that fresh raw grief mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now and hearing this grief changes over right. time right. is my experience. And I don't really ever expect my sorrow, my pain over Gary's death to entirely go away. I think it's something that I will always carry with me. And in part, that's a gift because of all the other stuff that comes along with that. I mean, we we grieve because we love, we have pain because we allow ourselves to become connected with people. And so the pain I feel over Gary's death and the grief I feel over Gary's death is so intertwined with this astonishing gift of love and wonder and joy and gratitude that came and continues to come and having that experience of loving and being loved by Gary. Because grief and love and pain and joy are you know, so intertwined, it's it's not really possible to separate all that out. But I am convicted that the love ultimately, as intertwined as it is with our, our grief and our pain, love goes deeper than the grief ultimately and love has the final word you actually do write this in a passage you write i know that the heaviness of grief and the weight of love are not the same things though they are deeply intertwined Mm. we grieve because we love so i don't want to confuse the burden of grief with the graced weight of love intertwined though they are Mm. don't want the burden of grief to so occupy my arms my heart, that I can't keep them open to the love that underpins the grief. That is more solid and enduring than the grief. That That is the gold in the ore. I journey, I keep having to tell myself, you know, so I keep having to hear this, you know, over and over again. It's because, oh, you know, I say I'm convicted mm-hmm. that the love goes deeper, but I, 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 I keep, I keep having to open myself to that conviction and mm-hmm. believe for my own self that it's true Absolutely. And, and keep hearing it, hearing it and, and telling myself and, and allowing others to tell me again and again. So there's a lot of repetition in grief. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. There's this quote that keeps going around from this um, show, right? WandaVision, where the woman says, Wanda says, isn't grief just love persevering, right? And we sort of, we love that quote because we thought, yes, this is it, right? And I think that's everything that you're writing about is the fact that this love ultimately resurfaces again and again to meet the grief, right? And to perhaps serve as a bomb to it, right? Yes. To calm it down, Amen. you know, to, yes. to remind it that it's it's its real purpose is because you, you once loved so deeply and continue to right. love so deeply. I mean, there's so much that I'm sure you have learned about grief, but what would you say you've learned about grief that you didn't know before? Mm. <laughs> I continue to find myself astonished by how much the heart can hold. And that has come as a something of a surprise and grief, just how, gosh, how much, how very much our hearts can hold. And I, I am absolutely uninterested in being trite or sentimental about this. I'm not trying to find the silver lining or put a happy bow on it. 
at the very beginning of uh, Sparanam, you're right, these pages are in part a testimony to that reality and to the wrestling I've had to do with it, it being Gary's death. I'm not interested in trying to make it make sense. I simply want to attend to the terrible fall and give it the lamentation it deserves. <laughs> and we were just talking about what you've learned about grief that you didn't know before. And yeah. you were saying that you were surprised by how much the heart can hold. Yes. It makes me think of, for those who are familiar with the Harry Potter story, the tent, that great tent that the Weasleys use where it looks, you know, kind of small and mundane on the outside, but you walk in and it's this magnificent big space. But I think our hearts are something like, you know, the Weasleys tent and that they wind up being able to hold way more than we ever imagined. And my experience is that there's something that happens in the breaking and mending that enlarges our hearts and makes it possible. And when I say mending, it's not like, you know, of course, our hearts don't go back together, though they don't ever go back together the way they did before the breaking. But there's also something beautiful in that and graceful in the mending and just in how much our hearts can hold. And by how much they can hold, I'm talking not only about the amount of sorrow that they can hold, but most especially the amount of love that they can hold. Uh, there's something about the the breaking that enables us to, to be even more open if we allow it, if we allow healing to come into the breaking. And for my particular path, that means allowing God, you know, allowing the spirit to, to move over the broken pieces and to move among the broken pieces and begin to show me how those pieces might want to come together in a new way that mysteriously makes my heart bigger than it was before and able to hold not only the sorrow that has come, but the joy and the love and the the ongoing possibilities and the ongoing hope that is that continues to be present in my life. I mean, I think about this um, Khalil Gibran poem all the time on joy and sorrow. In thinking about you and the love that you continue to have for Gary, I always think about this poem, right? Like the deeper that sorrow carves into mm -hmm. your being, the more joy you can contain. When you are right, sorrowful, yeah. look again in your heart yeah. and you shall see that in truth, you are weeping for that which has been your delight. I mean, uh, yeah. Khalil got it, right? Like he, <laughs> yes. he had it way before so many of us Amen. understood that grief and joy and love are not these things that are separate from one another. And I think your work also makes that apparent in a way you are you know writing about your love who just is no longer here in the physical but my god remains in so many other ways the eternal should mean that we get to mm. you know encounter our loved ones again you know those mm. who have passed i mean it was just beautiful and that makes me think about what you think the relationship between grief and and witness there is something about grief that wants to be seen and I know from the conversations I have with people, the exchanges that I have with people that so many of us carry griefs that, that, are, that we don't feel like we can speak. But there is something about grief that wants to be seen. There is something about grief that wants to be known, not only by ourselves, because sometimes our own grief is the hardest to see and to, to acknowledge and to bear witness to because there are so many parts of it that sometimes we don't even see ourselves. But I think there is so, so much solace that can come when we 
allow others, when we invite others to bear witness to our grief, to hear our grief, to see our grief, and when we can offer that to others. I really do think it all comes down to there is something about grief that wants to be seen, and there is solace that comes as we as we do that with, with one another and for one another, even and especially in the places where it becomes uncomfortable <laughs> or when we speak or hear others speak the grief that we or they thought was unspeakable. And it turns out, in my experience, grief, even the most unspeakable parts of grief are speakable. And how do we do that for one another? How do we enter into that kind of witness with one another? And there are, <laughs> there are many, many directions we can go with that from the personal to how does that happen on the personal and interpersonal level to how does that happen in a, in a public and cultural kind of kind of way. And I think those cultural and societal questions about grief are becoming only ever more pressing and we need to find some better and different answers for that. And I think when, when it comes to sharing our, our grief, I do think for at least for some kinds of, of bearing witness, it requires a certain amount of discernment about to whom can I entrust Oh yeah, this grief and this story? Because if we share it in places where it's it's not held, or if others share it with us in a way that we're not equipped to hold or able to be present to, boy, that can do some really hard, hard, hard things with grief. Then it can become harmful. Yes. Right. Um, yes. And, and because in Damaging. a way, you yeah. right, your grief is a part of your story. And Brittany Brown talks about this all the time. Like, you know, people earn the privilege of hearing your story right because right. out of your story you were being so vulnerable I'm just sort of wondering if I can pull something from the cure for sorrow and it is a blessing of breathing I just think there is so much about breath that reminds us that we still have life and that you know, my grief will not consume me as long as I have breath. That's something that I constantly say to myself over and over again. And I think for our readers who haven't yet read any of your work, let me go ahead and introduce you Mm, to this one poem that I love called Blessing of Breathing. That the first breath will come without fear. That the second breath will come without pain. The third breath that it will come without despair, and the fourth without anxiety, that the fifth breath will come with no bitterness, that the sixth breath will come for joy, breath seven, that it will come for love, may the eighth breath come for freedom, and the ninth for delight. When the tenth breath comes, may be for us to breathe together and the next and the next until our breathing is as one until our breathing is no more i think it's just the power of you know your poetry and your words to be able to just anchor you know people in their grief in their grief and i think this is part of the reason why i find your writing to um, 
I think to extend beyond, you know, really the grief of death and dying is because I, in my racialized grief, can pick up that book and remind myself that I'm still worthy of a life that mm. deserves full breath. I can pick up yeah. that book after a breakup. <laughs> Let's be honest. And just like, <laughs> breathe, girl. Oh, <laughs> like, gosh. you know, other, <laughs> other emotions will come, you know. And, and, you know, and I think people sometimes yeah. feel like their grief can't hold weight. But I think it really is anything that prevents you from being able to connect yourself and others. Right. Because if it destroys you from the inside, it deserves attention. It's almost like watching, Mm -hmm. you know, relationships and people fall apart because we have a culture that doesn't make room for all sorts of griefs. And the thing is, like, the more people pay attention to whatever grief they're feeling, the more and less judgmental they'd be about other kinds Mm -hmm. of griefs, too. Yeah. Have you found that? you've become a magnet for grieving people because you mm-hmm. put out all these books about grief and you're you're sort of out and loud about your grief right i have always been terribly moved by the people who take time to connect with me and so even before i was writing about grief i was always so moved by people whom i didn't know as well as those i did taking time to let me know about something that they found in my work and my writing or my artwork that they resonated with. And that is a tremendous gift and a blessing that it invites me and enables me to engage more deeply with my, my own work. And in the wake of Gary's death, as I began to write about grief, I really, I hadn't really anticipated is that, that some of those people who would contact me would be now people who were living with their own grief and who found something in the writing that I was doing now, or in the art that I was making now in the wake of Gary's death that connected for them, that resonated for them in their own grief. But I I think it goes back to the question you asked a moment ago about grief and witness, the relationship between grief and bearing witness. And again, there is something about grief that wants to be seen and heard and known. And so I think that's a piece of what's happening when people, people who are grieving reach out to me. To, to share something of, of their own grief. And they don't necessarily want to share all the details with me. But, but even when we don't share uh, you know, all the details of our story with another, there is something about, it's like it, grief is this hidden badge that we all wear. And I think what, what's happening when people contact me and connect with me is they want to show you I'm wearing that badge too. I know you're wearing it and I, w- I want you to know I'm wearing it too. Yeah. And there's, I'm, I'm very moved by, by that. And I think it's, I think that's, it's part of that ongoing conversation that we're, you know, that we're, <laughs> that grief, that grief invites us into. And that, ha- that conversation happens in all kinds of ways. What do you wish people knew about you outside of your grief? I love this question, Saran. And part of why I love it is that it, as anybody who grieves knows, grief can feel like it becomes such a defining thing about us. It can feel sometimes feel like the most true thing about us when there are plenty of other things that are still true about us. And that's grief. Grief, grief has some sort of deceptive kind. <laughs> of a a deceptive can have a very deceptive aspect Mm -hmm. to it. And so I think I love your question because it, 
it comes as such a great reminder that we are not solely defined by our grief. It is part of who we are and it can feel consuming. I think people who may be more familiar with my more recent work might not know I'm an artist and I love for people to know that about yeah. myself. That's a huge part of, of who I am as being an artist. And one of the gifts of being an artist is that being in the studio is one of the places that I have found some language for my grief. And when I say language, I don't mean only verbal language or written language, but sure. means of expression mm -hmm. for, for the grief. And I think that is so whatever form it takes, uh, whatever form that expression takes, I think that is really crucial for us to have. Words only get us so far. They're crucial, they're important. But if we don't also have some other means of expression, uh, it's it's easy to become become stuck. And I think something else that you mentioned, actually in both The Cure for Sorrow and Spiral, I just bring those up because I think those are the, the works, I think, that really demonstrate you wrestling with grief. Um, and you you write that 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 grief is the least linear thing you know. Talk about that for the people. That's definitely one of those things I've become convicted about since Gary's death is is grief. Yes, grief is for sure the least linear thing that I know. And in the culture that I'm familiar with, in the culture that I grew up in, there is sometimes this idea that grief proceeds and unfolds by orderly steps and stages that are identifiable. I remember one time early on after Gary's death, it, I crossed paths with a friend whom I hadn't seen in a long time uh, since long before Gary's death. And he, he said, so where are you in your grief? <laughs> and it conjured this image for me of like he was pulling out a map oh, as, as somebody who felt like he was very familiar with the stages of grief and kind of asking me to identify where I was on the map. And like, yeah, I, I, I didn't say this to him. And, and I, I, I know the question <laughs> came out of a lot of care about, about me and, and where I was and in, in navigating my sorrow. But it, um, there, you know, I, I have not found any map for grief. It's certainly not one that has any kind of orderly identifiable stages that lets us say something, you know, looking back on that conversation, I imagine an alternative scenario where I say, yeah, I arrived at acceptance last Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is my experience. I, I have not experienced grief that way. Yeah. And, and for me, there's something tremendously freeing about that. The idea that grief unfolds by orderly stages can set us up for a feeling of immense personal failure if we feel like we're not in the stage or yeah. at the point with our grief that we should be. And I will say that even, even as non-linearly as I think about grief, I can still feel that sense of failure and self-recrimination because I sometimes feel like I should be at a different point with my grief. But again, I think there's a tremendous freedom in the idea of grief not having easily identifiable stages and that it unfolds by twists and turns. And that part of what comes in that is not just, you know, grief sometimes presents us with difficult and painful surprises. But my experience is that more often what happens in not always being able to predict the turns that grief is going to take is that we get surprised with wondrous graces. Mm. And, and that again, not to put a silver, you know, not to put a, a fake silver lining on it, but that that continues to be one of the gifts and the graces that in the twisting and the turning and the unpredictability and in the mapless, guideless, chartless 
nature of grief that there are so many graces that come. And that I that makes me think of a time I don't know when it was. It was in the first year or two after Gary's death when I was just when I was so intensely mindful of everything, <laughs> all that I had lost in Gary's death. And I was I was actually visiting my parents one evening. They live a couple hours away from me. Yeah, I was in bed and having some quiet time of prayer and reflection and reading as I do uh, when I go to bed. And I just had this sense of something or someone wanting me to know this is when you begin to get some things back. And that was something I would not have anticipated. And I think that there are ways that continues to happen. And when I say, you know, when I talk about getting things back, it's not that they look the same as they look before, but there are things that come to us in our grieving that we could never have contrived or predicted on our own. And that was, that was a real gift for me to, to be able to receive that word that this is, this is the time you will begin to get some things back because grief, that's the way of grief. It can feel like this continual stripping away of every, all that we have known and loved and been familiar with and attached to and comforted by. And all that was, you know, familiar and known to us has been, has been taken away. And that notion that there is something that comes to us in our grieving has been, has provided a lot of solace for me. Where do you find joy? Since the pandemic began, I have two groups of friends I meet with on a weekly basis uh, <laughs> via video. Uh, mm-hmm. One is a one is a group of of girlfriends I was in seminary with, and we're scattered around the southeast. And it has been such an enormous gift to get to connect with them on a weekly basis. We've never been connected so regularly connected like this. When I'm in a groove in my studio, that can be a place of a lot of joy. Family again a place of uh, space of much joy and solace and trying to remind myself to pay attention you know, to, I, I walk every day and I try to, to pay attention as I'm walking and, yeah. and to notice and you know, what's in the sky and what's on the ground around me and what's in the terrain that I'm passing through and who are the neighbors I'm crossing paths with. And, and because our grief has a way of so taking over the, mundane everyday details mm-hmm. seeping into the everydayness of our lives, allowing that that joy to seep into the everyday moments as well to to meet the grief that lives in the everyday moments. Yeah. Jan, this was such a pleasure. I just I don't want this to end. <laughs> Saran, thank you. I am grateful for the conversation that you are inviting each of us into that is solace and balm and challenge and gift and blessing. Thank you for that. My pleasure. I just think a great way to sort of leave one another and a great gift for our audience would be for you to just read the postscript of Sparrow, because I tell you, I just I just sat there for a minute, you know, after reading that postscript because I thought I feel like this really is such a great message to all grievers out there, right? And I just again, I because I think it transcends uh, across death and dying and to other kinds of griefs that 
folks might be carrying. And in your own voice, if you could just bless us with with that, I think that would be really good. Thank you, Saran. This is what I write in the postscript. I am cautious about drawing conclusions or imposing closure on something that will never be entirely finished. There is no escaping the awful fact of it. The sparrow fell. I know of no explanation, no justification, no meaning or larger picture that will make sense of it. I will forever be gazing into that gap, that absence, tracing the shimmering outline of the broken sparrow, the brilliance that passed into this world and out of it, bearing my husband's name. What I know is that sometimes something slips through the gap. The absence sings, coaxing us to trust there is more than emptiness, more than, it, more than an eternal void that opens where a life has been. We are attended. We are accompanied. We are asked to open our eyes, our hearts to the grace of it that we might bear witness not only to the fall of the sparrow, but also to what follows it. The aching mystery that comes to sing in our bones, the presence that releases us into this living and into this world, but also with wondrous strangeness goes with us still, making a nest in us and helping us find our way home. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Hidden Grief. If you've enjoyed our first few episodes, please leave a review for our show on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Hidden Grief Pod and to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode was produced by me, Saran Sidime, and Hannah Bart. The music you heard was from Blue Dot Sessions. Our beautiful logo was designed by Rachel Ellison at Bat Sarah Press. Our episode art was designed by Eve Bishop. We're taking a break and we'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. And in the meantime, remember, we grieve to make room for abundant joy.